The Scream Kings are in no way responsible for any encounters with the paranormal, extraterrestrial abductions, eldritch insanity, hauntings, curses, hexes, demonic possessions, cryptozoological sightings, or any loss of sleep that may result from listening to this podcast. Thank you for listening to Scream Kings. This is Max George. And I'm Nathaniel Darkish. It rubs the podcast on its skin or it gets the hose again. (laughs) Yep. Yep. I went with that one. Yeah, that's beautiful. Such a wonderful image in my head to start us off with. Someone rubbing a podcast somehow over their skin. Yeah. Uh, For you crazy listeners out there who know where that quote comes from, you get another 50 spooky points. I was going to say, if you got your spooky points from our last episode, and then another spooky points from this episode, you probably leveled up as a horror fan. Yes. We should actually, like, do that. Like, have have a, like, horror fan leveling cards and actually have, like, experience points. That'd be a fun thing to do in the community. We should figure that out eventually. That would be amazing. We need to do this. Well, everybody... Welcome to our fourth episode! Woohoo! Seven episodes is what they say is like when podcasts hit their stride and we'll be maintaining. So we're three away. Stay with us. I honestly think that we've you know, continually gotten better and better. So I hope that we continue that upward trajectory. So when we hit our stride, it'll just be amazing beyond comprehension. We got to go to FearCon. Uh, what was it? Two weeks ago? What? Last week? I don't even remember yeah it was like a week and a half ago yeah crazy 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 um but it was so much fun we were able to talk to a lot of other podcasters we met a lot of people in the horror community we threw our business cards around like it was confetti so hopefully we got some listeners from them but overall it was such a fun experience Yes, yeah, we were pretty shameless. We would just, like, leave our cards all over seats whenever there was, like, a presentation or something. And it's true. It's yeah, true. I wouldn't be surprised if a few of the event organizers kept seeing our cards and, like, what? Who keeps doing this? But, eh, well, hopefully they picked up a card, too. Yeah, I mean, hopefully it all works out. <laughs> Seriously. Do you want to maybe go over your favorite part of FearCon, I guess? Um, yes. I would say my very favorite part of FearCon uh, was just some of the uh, costuming. Um, I was really impressed by, for example, that Jack Skellington costume that we saw. Uh, yes. That even had its mouth move, which I don't know how that happened, but it was amazing. We should probably post those pictures on the Scream Kings Facebook page just so people can see how amazing these cosplayers were. Yes, uh, and and on our Twitter as well. Absolutely. And also, you know, the, the really good Pennywise. Um, there was a few that we didn't get pictures of. Like, there was the, that Conjuring 2 family, which was awesome. Oh, yeah. Norman Bates. That one was pretty sweet. Really just some really impressive cosplaying. And also, like, those those uh, there's some really amazing cakes that were, like, made to look like uh, zombie diner waitress or, like, Pennywise. Or there, there's a bunch of them, and they were all really, really impressive. So true. It was such a fun event. I mean, my favorite part was probably just interacting with a bunch of people who were horror fans you know it felt like our people you know our little crazy weird horror family you know it wasn't it wasn't odd or anything to be so involved in horror and that was kind of fun to see yeah we we definitely were among our people for sure (laughs) and our tribe yeah Um, and just for the audience we were walking into the convention center and it was kind of this natural homeopathic convention going on at the same time and it was just so funny as we were walking through that convention we turned the corner and it was like ah look at all these people dressed up as freddy and jason and chucky we have found our people and a surprisingly high number of leather faces yeah really yeah it it was a lot of fun um and also along the lines of last episodes uh topic i actually got a little necronomicon pin that says uh, read banned books and i thought that was the best <laughs> it was so fun that was such a great vendor he had all sorts of different soaps that he had made um, and scented them based on various you know scents that he thought would relate to horror movies and i just thought that was super original he was a cool guy if you're listening i mean we gave him a card so if you're listening 
props. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And actually mentioning the Necronomicon reminds me of a piece of interesting horror news that I shared with you the other day. Yeah. Um, about Jason. Specifically, uh, apparently it's been recently revealed through some interviews that the director of Jason Goes to Hell, that movie at one point included the Necronomicon Ex Mortis, like you see in the Evil Dead series. And apparently the actual implication of that wasn't just a fun little cameo. He actually meant to suggest very directly that Jason is actually a deadite. Crazy! I thought that was a really fun little piece of trivia that has recently come out in the news, so... Absolutely. All horror movies are related is the moral of that story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's not just, you know, the, the Freddy versus Jason versus Ash kind of stuff. Like, there, there's even more connections than just occasional crossovers with, with people fighting. And while we're talking about horror movies, I think this is a good segue into beginning our episode that we're so excited because... We're tackling, again, another one of your all-time favorite movies. And besides it being your all-time favorite movie, it is so good. It is one of the best horror movies out there, I think. Well, definitely the most lauded. For it, sure. It did sweep the awards. Um, we're, of course, talking about The Silence of the Lambs. Woohoo! We had a, a couple different you know, talking points. I guess just to, to kick us off, I just want to talk about how amazing the acting is. Oh my goodness, it is just insanely impressive with with all of the acting. And I feel like we can get into that in much more detail when we actually start picking apart the movie. Um, but let's stay on track, Nathaniel, and what? move into your segment, your wonderful, wonderful segment where you talk to us about horror literature and stuff like that. Fine. I guess I'll talk about that and then go to silence of the land i guess i'll keep you on track yeah this is like a weird role reversal hey now <laughs> anyway anyway i'm all ears okay so in th this episode's studying the strange segment i wanted to talk a little bit about the very origins of horror um, so this is going to be the first of, of uh, several pieces on the origins of horror and, and some you know key players in kind of setting up the horror genre as we know it today. And so today I just kind of wanted to talk very generally about how horror has really permeated our culture as, as human beings from the very beginning. You know, if you look at some of the oldest known writings, um, there's definitely a, a lot of imagery that we can associate with modern horror. Lots of demons, lots of monsters, lots of horrific things all throughout ancient mythology, uh, ancient Judeo-Christian beliefs. I mean, you find demons in stories of creepy crawlies even before the Judeo-Christian idea of a demon. I mean, demon comes from the Greek translation daemon, uh, and so it's that idea has been around for a very long time, very long time. The Christians don't have a monopoly on demons at all. Oh, no, no, yeah. Definitely, you know, you look at, like, ancient Sumerian myths or... Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, don't get me started talking about demons or we're going to be here all night. <laughs> yeah, but, but I mean, you know, that that's just one one small point. You know, you also look at a lot of, for example, ancient Greek mythology, and we have monsters like the Hydra and Medusa, and, you know, all of these things are all ancient ideas that do a lot to spread this basic concept of a monster. Um, now, we don't necessarily use a lot of those in a lot of modern horror movies today, but they kind of set the groundwork for, you know, what, what a monster looks like, what a monster acts like, what it does. You know, it, they, a lot of those would eat people or you know, do horrible things to a person like, you know, turn them into stone or whatever. And a lot of those things, you know, you can look at, at a lot of these mythologies and a lot of these ideas. And for the large part, it's really kind of this way of explaining the world explaining, you know, nature and man's purpose in life. And also, you know, a lot of times, a lot of this kind of early horror served as, as a cautionary tales. And that really is something that has really continued throughout all of uh, time. If you look at most, you know, children's cautionary stories, you know, the grim fairy tales even, or, you know, Mother Goose, a lot of those are really dark and twisted kind of stories because... It's supposed to teach a lesson to children about how to interact with the real-life dangers of the world. So it's really interesting to see that from, from the very beginning, 
you know, there's stories about all sorts of really interested and, and kind of twisted things. Like I mentioned, you know, with Grimm, if you pick a, an unedited uh, version of, of Grimm fairy tales, you kind of get a little bit of, of the stomach churning kind of stuff. Guys coming and cutting off children's thumbs for sucking them, stuff like that. Well, I mean, even when you're talking about that, the thing that kind of comes to my mind is the story of the Pied Piper. You know, there's this this town that's, you know, in distress. They need some help against this crazy onslaught of rats. This guy comes, you know, he says that he can use his magic flute or whatever. You know, I'm summarizing a lot of the story. It's a very detailed story if you get into it. Um, he wants something in return. The town doesn't give him that. And so he goes through town, you know, playing this flute. And it not only seduces all the rats, but it seduces the children. And he takes them i mean it's this mass kidnapping story about you know for me honoring your commitments and honoring your promises and when i heard that as a kid it terrified me because you know this creepy man is going to come play his flute and lead all the children away that's terrifying as a kid you know i no one wants to be kidnapped as a child no one wants to be kidnapped as an adult and that story just lays it out there yeah, I mean, and that would make a good horror movie today. Absolutely. And and I mean, you know, that's why we see to this day that a lot of these iconic horror monsters throughout pretty much all of film, a lot of them come from a lot of these very basic uh, ideas of folklore. You know, not just speaking about, you know, stuff like vampires coming from Eastern Europe, but, you know, we, we have just tons and tons of, of these monsters that have, you know, nursery rhymes associated with them or things along those lines and and you know every time it's it's going back to these old old ideas that most of them go to to how we teach our children about the world so i mean that's really all i wanted to say this time around uh next time i'm going to probably start going into kind of the early influence of judeo-christian imagery and and the belief system uh, and its effect on horror today as well so that's it for this round of studying the strange well, no, I think that's a great segue, too, into the movie, because, again, you can parallel a bunch of horror movies to that same idea that there's this cautionary foreboding, something scary is about to happen, and it is an insight into human nature and human character of, okay, well, what is the right thing and what is the wrong thing to do when faced with this troubling event? So speaking of very troubling events, <laughs> we have a story... Uh, Silence of the Lambs, which starts with a serial killer at large. He has skinned and killed five young women at, at the point where our story begins. Poor Buffalo Bill. I'll get into Buffalo Bill in a little bit, but poor Buffalo Bill. Yeah, poor, murderous, terrible, I mean, creepy Buffalo Bill. I'm not empathizing with the serial killer. I'm empathizing with his life and what had to have happened in his life to get him to the point of where he was at. Yes. So I guess, should we start off with Bill? Um, I feel like it would be a disgrace if we started talking about Silence of the Lambs without talking about your second soulmate, Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> okay, we can, we, can, we can start with Hannibal. Of course, there are multiple iterations of Hannibal Lecter throughout media, and... We have him in book form, we have him in movies, and then also the uh, very excellent TV show Hannibal. And this performance in Silence of the Lambs by Anthony Hopkins is amazing. Is extremely amazing. I mean, he has very, very little time on screen, and it won him Best Actor. He like, makes. And, I mean, he's so scared he he makes you pee your pants. It's ridiculous how good he is. Yes, and so I love this idea of. Hannibal Lecter. Um, and, and I like that he isn't the main villain, but regardless, he is so charismatic and so compelling as a character that he steals the limelight from the actual serial killer at large in the film. And I mean, you know, he's, he's in prison. He's so charismatic, too, in the movie that it almost makes you start to like him. He almost becomes a protagonist in some sense. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I think that's a reason why... You know, the, the next book in the series, Hannibal, he became the protagonist. Right. He almost becomes a, a hero in a way, which is really messed up because, I mean, I'll, we'll get into that more later uh, when we have our uh, eventually planned all Hannibal episode extravaganza. Yes, 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 yes. Let's maybe take a second and rewind a little bit. Um, again, for our listeners, there's going to be spoilers. If you haven't seen Silence of the Lambs, 
please go watch Silence of the Lambs. It's amazing. Yeah, like, just stop listening to this episode because you could be watching Silence of the Lambs instead. Watch Silence of the Lambs, bask in its amazing glory, and then come back and listen to us talk about it, which will be less entertaining, but still hopefully, you know, enjoyable. So the premise of this movie is we have Clarice Starling, who's played by Jodie Foster. And again, she her acting is insanely amazing. She won Best Actress. So she is a new FBI um, and FBI recruit, FBI participant. What? Trainee. Trainee. OK. Yeah, <laughs> Clearly, she's, I'm not she's, a part of the FBI. Yeah, she's she is not an FBI agent right now. She is uh, currently attending the FBI Academy and. She is just, you know, out one day doing a, a practice run on, on one of their uh, running courses and is pulled into the office of Jack Crawford, uh, who is in charge of the behavioral psychology department of the FBI. And he has a task for her. Which is to start kind of investigating the serial killers, um, codenamed Buffalo Bill. We'll get into his kind of backstory and what's going on with him. But she's also assigned to kind of go and talk to Hannibal Lecter, who is in a high-level security unit. Um, he is a very well-accomplished psychiatrist. He also is a cannibal. Yes, um, and he had been ca- or captured years before uh, by another agent, Will Graham, and you know has been in this psychiatric hospital since then. At the very beginning, Clarice is just told, "You just need to go and you know get him to do this questionnaire." Uh, we're just trying to get more information about serial killers. She doesn't know that, you know, basically this is trying to get some information, some help from Hannibal relative to finding this Buffalo Bill serial killer, who, like I said, had, had, had at the beginning of the film already killed and skinned five women. And so Clarice goes to this mental hospital, and and I just want to take a, a moment and just talk about the, the scene of her getting down to Hannibal. Uh, He's at the deepest, most high security part of the prison. And the scene of her getting to him probably takes five minutes of screen time. And it's probably one of the very best, like ways to build up a a movie monster of any sort. And I've ever seen. Yeah. It's, it's just brilliant. Every shot in this movie was so well thought out and so well designed. It's just, it blows my mind. Yeah, and so, you know, with this, it's you start out with just the head of the hospital, Dr. Chilton, who is the skeeziest medical professional ever. And I, I can't stand him. him. Yeah, spoiler alert, it's suggested at the very end that Hannibal hunts him down and kills him. And I can't think of a nicer person for that to happen to. Anyway, we'll, we'll come back to that later. But So you're getting you know, after me for empathizing with Buffalo Bill, but you're all for Hannibal just cannibalizing Chilton? Hmm? Yes. If any fictional character deserves to be eaten, it's Dr. Chilton. There's a whole issue of ethics that we could go into right here, but we won't because the hey. the listeners have better things to listen to. <laughs> okay, fine. So, you know, it, it starts with Clarice getting instructions of like, okay, like, don't pass him anything. Don't approach the glass. And, and then, you know, they, they're walking down and passing through different security gates and all that. And he shows her a picture of what Hannibal... Uh, did to a nurse after pretending to have uh, chest pain and he did it with like a, a ballpoint pen and he just presumably just really jacked up you don't even see the picture which is actually something also i really like about the film is that a lot of the violence and, and horror of the film is implied which makes it honestly scarier yeah i agree i hate when horror movies nowadays just throw every single horror aspect right at your face i mean there's no room for the unknown, you know, if that makes sense. You, they just don't leave the imagination to make up its own scare factor. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I, I think it's much scarier for us to kind of be guessing at exactly what's on that, you know, little picture that Chilton held up or things like that uh, than, you know, than seeing the buckets of blood. The buckets of blood is gross, but it's not necessarily scary. This movie is scary. Um, and and so, you know, it just keeps making it more and more after after being shown a picture of, you know, something that happened to a nurse and, you know, Hannibal's heart rate didn't even like go over, I think, 85 beats per minute or something like that while attacking her, which is terrifying in and of itself. Then, you know, we have 
then you know going through even more security and even more security and it just you know is going on and on and on for like five minutes and you know it doesn't feel like awkward to watch or boring or anything like that it just makes it more and more tense I was just going to say, I feel like the movie itself really holds on to that idea of being tense the entire time. I think that's one of the best things about this horror movie is you never feel comfortable watching it. There's never any moment where you're like, okay, I can take a break right now. It's so, it just grabs you by the heart and does not let go. And I think that's a real, real testament to its scaring ability. You're already tense because he's at this bottom of this giant, hit basically of this hospital and you know you finally get to the final security gate Chilton leaves and you know then it's just you know a couple of orderlies who are just, you know these huge buff guys and you know they're they're being encouraging and sweet to Clarice but they're also you know kind of reiterating like don't you know approach the glass like you have to be safe you have to be careful and so then Clarice then walks by everyone else on that same row and you know they're you know, screaming and whispering really unspeakable, awful things to her and all of that. And then you finally get to Dr. Lecter. And he is standing there being very calm, poised. And from the very beginning, he's a gentleman. And suddenly, like, that just makes you realize just how dangerous he is. Because he can afford to be a gentleman because he's not some gibbering, insane person. He... His insanity, or whatever he has, is so under control that Hannibal can stand there and be polite or rude when he wants to be. Um, and and his his scare tactics are basically just by getting into your head. And uh, it's just uh, it's such a good scene. I love that scene. Well, and I think this is again another testament to the of how scary this movie is because I mean if you hear that you're gonna watch this movie about this cannibal and another serial killer I mean you already have those kind of stereotypes of this cannibal is gonna be this insane person you know speaking gibberish or just violent to be violent and, and kind of all of these ideas already floating in your head and when you meet Dr. Lecter for the first time it throws all of those out the window he's a reasonable guy he talks to you he's very you know, affluent in the way he talks and everything, and it just kind of messes up your head. You you don't know what to think about him. You know he's a cannibal. You know he's a serial killer. But he's also very professional. He's very courteous. He's very dignified. There's a sense of, of regalness to him, and it just it, it messes with you. And it ugh, Anthony Hopkins just pulls it off so good. So good. Yeah, and, and I love that, like, every every syllable is pronounced very precisely. Oh, yeah. Like, he is a man without conventional flaws. I mean, you know, in, in the eyes of the world, he's a monster, but he doesn't have time or interest in being a sloppy, insane whatever. He wants to be respected for his genius, and he will not drop the mask of being a genius at any point. Right. And I mean, we've kind of already talked about how well these actors are doing. They just kind of eat up the roles. I think it's so brilliant. We've made a lot of reference to a lot of the scares in this movie are just kind of implied. They don't come out and say it. Uh, I mean, of course, there are a few moments, especially Buffalo Bill's story, where you see a lot of the terror and a lot of the, the psychological fear that is involved in that. But a lot of, you know, the scariest moments between Clarice and Hannibal are very subtle, very calm. I mean, for me, the scariest part of this movie is when Clarice is telling Hannibal about waking up, hearing the slaughtering of the lambs. It's just so intense and so real and so visceral. That just, it, it gets under your skin. Yes, and, and I think that also really is a testament to Jodie Foster's amazing performance because she does, she plays the role of, of Clarice who... You know, is this, you know, young woman who is trying her best to do good and, and trying to kind of emulate her father, who was a police officer, was killed in the line of duty. You know, she has to kind of sacrifice sharing that with this monster, with Hannibal Lecter, in order to get information about this serial killer. 
Buffalo Bill. It, so basically, it's it's at a great personal cost to herself. She has to be totally open and frank with this man who um, is known for getting people in, or inside people's heads and, and messing them up. I mean, he basically convinces one of the other patients in the hospital uh, in the cell next to him to kill himself in the middle of the night uh, for something he does to Clarice, uh, which is specifically masturbating and then throwing the semen at her face. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, he, he punishes that other patient for being rude. He talks him into killing himself. Like, that's the kind of power that Hannibal Lecter holds. And so Clarice, knowing that about Hannibal, has to, you know, kind of open herself up to his scrutiny and his... I guess psychoanalyzing and you know that that's that is a scary thing to do and really all of this is just happening in like the first 15 to 30 minutes of the movie there's so much more that we could go into you know shot by shot scene by scene of how well crafted this movie is it's such a wonderful piece of art um do you want to just kind of give us a real quick synopsis of the rest of the movie so we can talk about you know, the backstory of Buffalo Bill, and talk about how, you know, cannibalism is kind of a, a hallmark of this movie, but not really. Yeah, the the gist of the story from here is that Hannibal provides some clues to Clarice over time, and in exchange for providing these clues, ends up making a deal with a senator whose daughter has been taken by Buffalo Bill in order to get moved to a different hospital that actually has a view, um, that's maybe a little bit lighter security, and... So that's kind of what's going on with Hannibal. And then basically as the result of some steps during the transfer process, he ends up escaping. You know, and of course that, that uh, also involves him you know, cutting a guy's face off and wearing it over his own and all sorts of fun, iconic little bits. But then in the, the kind of the main uh, A storyline, uh, Clarice is you know, fo- uh, following these clues relative to Buffalo Bill, uh, whose real name is James Gum. And... Basic Buffalo Bill has, like I mentioned, uh, kidnapped the daughter of a senator and has her down in a uh, well in the in his basement. And he's trying to he finds uh, girls that are a little bit bigger so that way he can starve them and then it loosens up their skin so he can cut off their skin. And he's making a woman suit. He believes that he is transsexual. And we might get into that in just a second uh, in a little bit more detail, because I know that that's something that has gotten some criticism about the film. But, you know, it, it's it's basically said that he believes he's transsexual, but he's actually not. But he's making a woman's suit. Right. I mean, from the research that I've done, especially in Buffalo Bill, a lot of the trauma of him growing up. I mean, his mom in the book, it talks about how his mother misspelled his name on his birth certificate, you know. Um, yeah, that's why his name is James, not James. Right. I mean, it, it talks a lot about how he was not born a criminal, but made one after years and years of systematic abuse. Yes. Um, and so it, this has created some, you know, really intense emotions inside of, you know, dysphoria of who he is. Is he, you know, does he feel like he needs to be a woman or does he want to strip himself of masculinity because he sees the male image as inferior to the woman's image. And I mean, that's a lot of the controversy is we can get into it a little bit later. I have a lot to say about it. <laughs> we'll get back to that really uh, quickly. I think uh, just finished hitting the main points of the plot and then let's dig into Buffalo Bill. Clarice looks at the the evidence and, you know, after some kind of prompting from uh, Lecter just before he escapes, is able to look at the evidence and realize that the first victim was probably someone who lived close to the serial killer. Uh, because he actually weighed her body down, you know, try to hide her while the other victims, you know, they just kind of floated down rivers or whatever. And so, you know, there, there seemed to be a special significance to this woman. And so Clarice goes to that town and is investigating and actually uh, runs into uh, Buffalo Bill uh, while doing her uh, just kind of rounds of, of you know, investigating and, and talking to people. And realizes uh, as she goes into uh, his house and you know, he's supposed to be getting her a, a card for somebody just to assist with her investigation and she sees uh, a moth which the moth uh, cocoons uh, ha- had been shoved down the uh, throats of the different victims 
and it was a very unique kind of moth. It was a death's head moth, which is from Asia. And so she sees one of those flying around and realizes, oh, this is the place. And then it kind of results in a final showdown in which uh, Bill is killed and the girl, the senator's daughter, is saved. Right. Um, and then, and again, you know, cut to Hannibal in Costa Rica hunting down Chilton. Yes, he escaped. <laughs> yes. Uh, and again, there's so much in this movie, I think, that we can talk about. But let's just kind of focus on the main points. I know we've talked a lot about how the scares in it are very subtle. Um, how they try and just kind of, in the context of what they're doing, is where the fear is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, I just want to comment on how cannibalism is such a highlighted feature of Hannibal Lecter. However, in this movie, it's hardly even touched upon, which I think is brilliant. Yeah, basically, really, you know, we, we hear Clarice say, you know, in, in an exchange that, you know, Hannibal says, well, I didn't keep trophies, you know, when trying to figure out what the significance of, of skinning the women had to do. And then Clarice says, no, you ate them. And then also just, you know, the... The famous line about uh, eating a census taker's liver with uh, fava beans and a nice Chianti. Yes. <laughs> it every time like like it, it seems almost so silly the like noise, but uh, Anthony Hopkins just nails it. I don't know what he does, but he's amazing. And so again, I think that I keep saying and again and again and again. I'm sorry, listeners, but again. <laughs> The real scare in this movie, I think, revolves around what Buffalo Bill is doing. Yes. Uh, And like I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, you know, I I feel sorry for him. I mean, he's a serial killer. Yes, I will not excuse the things he does. But like Hannibal Lecter himself said, he was not born a criminal. He was made one after systematic abuse. And I think that really is a hallmark feature in a lot of serial killers out there is... You know, it's this idea of nature versus nurture. I personally don't believe evil is inherent to human beings. You know, you you learn how to become hateful and you learn all those terrible things to do to other people. And unfortunately, it, it can completely mess up your brain chemistry, your neuroscience because of all of this abuse. And it is so, so chaotic and so damaging to individuals. Definitely. And, and you know, whenever I've studied almost any notable serial killer or you know, cult leader or anything like that throughout you know, real history, um, almost all of them have just really awful childhoods um, and just yeah, have things in their lives that kind of push them to really just horrible uh, actions later on in their life. And that definitely doesn't excuse what they do, but it does, yeah, I... I, I I think it is actually fair to say that that you know you could feel sympathy for these really awful killers because yeah generally their life circumstances have been just insanely terrible. Well, Ugh, just I, it's bad. <laughs> I think there's a really a deep pathos in kind of the psyche of Buffalo Bill, especially that is prevalent in today's society of this you know heterosexual masculinity that a lot of you know boys and and men go through that they have so much pressure to be a certain way. Uh, you know, you have to not show emotion. You have to, you know, not cry in front of others. You have to be the bread winner for your family. There's all of these pressures, and sometimes those make you snap. And I think Buffalo Bill is such a good example of this. And I want to read something that Judith Halberstrom said. She's an author of Skin Shows, Gothic Horror, and Technology of Monsters. Okay. She writes a little bit about Buffalo Bill and kind of his gender confusion, sexual orientation, and all of that. And I think it is a good insight into the character. And she writes, The case for Buffalo Bill's extreme violence against women lies not in his gender confusion or his sexual orientation, but in his humanist presumption that his sex and his gender and his orientation must all match up to this mythic norm of white heterosexual masculinity. I think that's brilliant because that's so relevant today that, you know, we put all of these stereotypes and these gender stereotypes on individuals and it's not healthy. It's not healthy at all. Yeah. I mean, if you look at something that he does, I mean, he, he obviously is very skilled at sewing, for example. Exactly. Which, you know, is stereotypically associated with women. 
And so I find it really interesting that, you know, he has to do something that kind of defies this gender norm in order for him to transform himself into a woman. Exactly. He goes so far to avoid that gender norm that he becomes a serial killer and takes these beautiful women and wants to become them. Not because, you know, he is transsexual or he is... That, to me, is not what Buffalo Bill is about. To me, what it's about is these gender norms that have broken this individual into something so chaotic. Yes. And I think it's also really interesting to note that if you look at how Buffalo Bill works as a serial killer, he you can see really three main real-life influences on, on kind of how he was built as a character. So specifically, like, his, his tactics for luring in the women... Uh, involves stuff like you know having difficulty putting furniture in the back of a car you know oh you know i i have a broken arm that kind of stuff and that's very much what ted bundy did right um and so there's that aspect and then there's also you know the fact that he skinned his victims and you know tried to uh, do things with the skin which is ed gein uh, who is also the influence for you know leatherface and the texas chainsaw movies um norman bates to an extent um Ed Gein is really a, a big uh, influence on the horror genre. And then also a third person whose name I can't remember, but basically just it boils down to him. He had a pit in his basement. He kept women in, which is really disturbing and is something that Buffalo Bill does. And I mean, a lot of the focus of this movie is on Hannibal Lecter and Anthony Hopkins does such a good job. Um, however, there are some terrifying scenes that Ted Levine, the, the actor who plays buffalo bill does i mean primarily the scene with the senator's daughter in the pit and you know the the quote that we did at the beginning of this episode his dancing to goodbye horses by q lazarus putting on the makeup and other women's clothing accessories all that and it just it's terrifying it's terrifying this movie is so scary yeah and i'm gonna mention my uh, scene actually scares me the most is actually one of the Buffalo Bill scenes. It's actually just that final uh, showdown with Clarice. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, she's looking for him in his house. He, you know, ran a, ran away, and she's basically going through this kind of labyrinthine basement, room by room, and, you know, she's breathing heavily. She's, you know, very panicky, and, you know, she kicks open each door and, you know, has her gun out. And basically, you know, while she's searching, after she finds this dead body in a bathtub presumably of the lady who actually owned the house she suddenly has the lights go out and then we have the scene basically through the eyes of buffalo bill looking through night vision equipment as he slowly approaches clarice and he almost you know he almost strokes her hair and oh, yeah Ugh. you know and then Ugh. he almost shoots her or you know he shoots but misses and she shoots and you know kills him and oh that scene is so tense just so insanely tense like it's it's for me definitely the scariest scene and just you know his performance as buffalo bill you know really should have earned him uh some some awards as well but alas you know it, it just swept the awards in every other way it know, best really picture did. best director best adapted screenplay best actress and best actor but you know whatever uh so we've talked a lot about the movie um and just kind of to wrap up what do you think that Silence of the Lambs, what does it do that other horror movies nowadays don't do? Or just kind of what is your general impression of this movie? I know we've kind of already gone through it all, but as your final comment, Nathaniel, what does this movie do that other movies don't? And what makes it such a good movie? I think what, it, what makes it so good is that it... It's a few things. It takes its time. It lets the tension build naturally, like as you're watching it. Um, it lets the actors really, you know, fall into these roles and and live and breathe. And it gives us real life monsters to be afraid of. You know, there are really people, like I mentioned, you know, by name, uh, who have done these things. And so. The idea of Hannibal Lecter or Buffalo Bill is realistic, and that's really terrifying. Um, and you know, a lot of times it gets shelved, you know, as a thriller or a suspense movie or something like that. 
but you know regardless of what you call it it's terrifying and it's definitely you know a horror film for that reason but it's it's something that can happen in real life and that is i think what makes it so scary at the end of the day i agree i mean my kind of interpretation of the movie and why it's so scary is very similar you know we talked a lot about buffalo bill and how these you know, societal pressures kind of made him snap and the abuse he went through in his life kind of twisted him into a serial killer. That happens nowadays. Um, I mean, look at all of just the shootings that have happened in the last year. Uh, Sandy Hook, the Las Vegas shooting, this one that we just had at the church in Texas. You know, we don't know what's going on in people's lives and we don't know how much pressure those events are causing them. And who knows when someone is going to snap and just lose it. And that is terrifying. It really is terrifying. Yeah, yeah. It, and yeah, like I said, it's it's the real life monsters that really get under your skin. You know, you can you can go to bed at night and be afraid that there's, you know, a monster under the bed. But it's even scary to look out your window and realize that you know so little about your neighbors they might be a serial killer. You don't know. Like, it's that kind of stuff that, that really gets gets under your skin. And I would even take it one step further. And, you know, you look into the mirror and you think you know yourself. But sometimes you don't. And you don't know if you're going to snap one day or what is going to happen in your life to cause you to snap. That That this movie shows you that darkness of the human enigma. And I think it's brilliant. Yeah, and uh, I think it also does, I mean, along those lines, I think that also kind of emphasizes the point that it's probably good to, you know, if you're dealing with anxiety or depression or any sort of mental illness, get some help with it. I, I'm going to say right now, I deal with anxiety and depression um, and some uh, uh, OCD tendencies. I see a psychiatrist regularly, and it has done so much to help me as a person. And so definitely, you know, if I can have any good come from this podcast, it's, it's that, you know, people need to take care of their mental health. We should destigmatize it um, because not getting uh, mental health issues treated is, you know, can result in, you know, in worse depression. A lot of times, you know, it results in suicide. A lot of times people who are suffering from mental illness are the victims of crimes uh, more often than the perpetrators of them. I also wanted to note. Um, and then also, you know, finally, it can result in really bad things. It's really rare, but we don't want anyone to have to, you know, suffer when there is mental health help out there. And along that line, too, I just want to kind of make it very apparent that if you belong to the LGBTQ community and you're feeling those societal pressures and norms, that there is help out there. Um, you know, if you are feeling depressed to the point where you are starting to feel suicidal, please reach out to friends or family that you can trust and you feel safe around so that they can help you and help you kind of on the right track. And I just want to provide our listeners, if any of them are struggling with anything like that, the, the hotline for the Trevor Project, which is an awesome organization that helps youth who are struggling with those issues to kind of help them accept themselves. And the, the phone number to that is just 866-488-7386. And again, please, if you are to that point, please reach out and get help. It's better than anything else that you can do. So on that note, <laughs> I feel like we, we left that pretty heavy. Should we move into my occult corner? Yes, we should. I'm excited about this one. So a lot of people I'm sure are imagining that I'm going to be talking into kind of the, the history of cannibalism and what it means. And I, I thought about doing that for a really long time. I was going to go into this idea that eating human flesh makes one stronger because you absorb their power, their energy. I also thought about talking about the Wendigo and how it is a very common story in different mythologies of a cannibalistic kind of a monster. But then I decided to completely not do anything about that. <laughs> we'll come back to those later. We will come back to cannibalism. <laughs> Can we make that a hashtag? Hashtag we will come back to cannibalism. Well, I mean, with the, the longer uh, character limits, that probably wouldn't be that bad of a hashtag these days. Um, and if you are on Twitter, definitely check us out. Shameless mm -hmm. plug for social media. Shameless plug. So what I wanted to talk about today is actually 
the moth from this movie and from the novel. Uh, the moths that they use in the, in the novel and the cinema production are actually different, and it's got a lot of creepy mythos to it. It's, it's pretty interesting. And I'm just going to throw in real quick, um, the book, uh, Silence of the Lambs, is extremely well adapted. I think it's a wonderful read. Um, I love it like in equal portions to the, the film. And other than this slight difference with the moths and a few other you know, nitpicky details, it's basically the same thing. Okay, now go ahead. <laughs> no worries. So I want to talk about the moth that they feature in the movie first. And it's a little less um, kind of creepy than the one that is featured in the book. They're very similar in species, but they are different. So the one that they kind of highlight in the movie is known as the Death's Head Hawk Moth. Um, and there's actually three subspecies of this moth. And kind of the key feature of this animal is that the back patterns that you see on the moth start to kind of look like a skull in some situations. And for me, I can see it very apparently. I don't know about you, Nathaniel. Yes. Oh, and I mean, it's it's used on all of the posters and cover art for basically everything associated with the book or the movie. So, right. And yeah, it looks like a skull because of that skull pattern. Um, a lot of cultures who obviously are around this moth have associated it with supernatural and evil and have a lot of superstitious fears. Uh, and especially because that this moth also can make like a mouse like squeaking noise, the sharp, it's a sharp noise. It sounds like a ma or a, a mouse. It's it's really creepy. Uh, it just kind of throws off your senses. You think it should be a mammal, and then you find out it's a moth. It, it, yeah, I don't like that. <laughs> yeah, that's that's kind of gross. And the moth that they use in the movie is actually you find it in a lot of media, uh, primarily in Bram Stoker's Dracula. This is the type of moth that he is sending to Renfield to consume. So. The last, cool thing stuff I, there. Uh, the last thing I want to say about the moth that they use in the movie is that there are three subspecies. Um, they're all within the same family of moths. The first one is the Acherontia atropos. The second one is the Acherontia lachesis. And then the last one, Acherontia styx. And those subnames all derived from Grecian myths. So the first revolves around the Moirai, of Greek mythology, which are known as the Fates. Um, Atropos is the one who, let me find my notes, allots the correct amount of time of life to a being. So right there you see, you know, the, the subname of this moth is associated with the Fates and death and life. Mm -hmm. um, the second one the Archeron, oh, these, I'm probably butchering these names, and I apologize to my listeners if any of them are fluent in Greek. Um, Isn't that a tributary of the river Styx? Exactly. Um, and, of course, the last one is Archerontia Styx, the famous river of the Grecian idea of hell, Hades. Um, and, again, so all of this is referring to kind of the mythos of this moth being associated with death. Mm-hmm. So the moth that they use in the book is a little bit different. It's a different species. It's an Arabid moth, which is called the Ascalafa ordorata. Uh, and it's commonly known as the black witch moth. A little spooky there. Mm -hmm. And females moths of this species can grow about 17 centimeters, which is gross. They're huge. You hold it in your hand and it almost covers your fingers. It's so gross. I don't like moths. So it's probably more gross to me than it is to the rest of humankind. <laughs> it's it's a little gross, even though I don't really mind moths that much. So this moth is very much associated with death and kind of this pathos of creepiness. Um, there are a lot of different mythologies out there who symbolize it as a harbinger of doom and death. Primarily the Mexican and Caribbean folklore say that one of these moths flying into the house is could be considered bad luck, especially in the Mexico tradition that if there's a sickness in the house and the moth enters into the house, they believe that the sick person will die. 
So that's a little ominous. Make sure you have your moth lights so that they fly to the moth and not your house. <laughs> uh, in Jamaica, this moth is actually seen as the embodiment of a lost soul or a soul that hasn't found peace yet. In Hawaii, this black witch moth is actually associated with death, but it also has a happier connotation with it as well. Um, if you see this moth after someone has recently passed away who's been beloved to you, the Hawaiian tradition states that this is actually the soul of that person coming to say goodbye, which I think is pretty sweet compared to all of the other myths that we've just gone over. Um, two more that I want to talk about in Paraguay. This moth, this is crazy, but there's a mistaken belief that the moth urinates over the human victims and inoculates them with their eggs, which then will develop into maggots, of course, under the skin. They believe that if it can touch your eyes, you'll go blind, and they believe that these maggots um, can completely just consume you, and it's... I'll let the imagination take it from there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, lovely, 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 lovely. Um, and then the last thing that I want to talk about, the black witch moth is also known as la mariposa de la muerte, uh, which is the butterfly of death in Spanish. So again, this, this moth in all sense of the idea is associated with death and can t- kind of be seen as a type of grim uh, from other kind of traditional mythologies out there as you see this moth, death and doom and sickness are going to be coming your way. Yeah. Um, I also love that, you know, if you look at it just, you know, from a very basic point of view, I mean, moths go undergo this, you know, transformation process like Bill himself was doing. You know, he was trying to transform from a man to a woman. And, you know, and it seems like it's really significant that the cocoon was, you know, in the the throats of these women because they are kind of contributing to his transformation. So I think it's a really cool also uh, uh, imagery a piece that that goes with uh, the moth as well. Absolutely. All right. Well, that is really all we had today for this episode. Uh, we love this movie. If you didn't figure that out already, then please re-listen because the movie is so amazing, and we urge everyone to go and watch it. And then watch it again. And then after you watch it, listen to our podcast again, and go and give us reviews. <laughs> or follow us on Facebook or Twitter or give us a shout out to your friends. Really anything you can do to to spread the word is super appreciated and super helpful. And speaking of you listeners, I just want to say thank you so much. I mean, this is our fourth episode and we've had such a great response from everybody. I mean, my boss at work has listened to us and I think that's just, that's just so amazing. It's really made podcasting much more fun than I anticipated it to be. I thought nobody was going to listen. So thank you. (laughs) Yeah. And I also just want to say thank you as well. Um, Do you want to also plug the uh, other podcasts that you appeared on recently? Yes, of course. If you haven't listened to it already, please go and check it out. Um, It's called Monsters Out of the Closet, and it is another horror-themed podcast with an emphasis on LGBT community. It takes a bunch of different stories and medium that um, are LGBT-friendly and presents it in a horror theme and i was a voice actor for them and i hope to continue to be one i had a blast yeah i checked it out i enjoyed it a great deal um especially the little excerpts from a uh horror opera that uh, is apparently coming out soon that was that was really cool to have that included throughout it too absolutely they do a great job i can't i could rave and rave and rave and rave yep but i guess our time is up it might actually be slightly under an hour. <gasps> so that's really nice. So we better stop right now. Okay, thanks. Thank you, everybody. We love you. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs>